now, ladies and gentlemen, a man who inspires one emotion in the hearts of all other men. Jealousy. <laughs> Mr. Cary Grant, ladies and gentlemen. For the past two years, I've appeared here as a standing for a great actress and a great lady. Tonight, I relinquish my job by happily saying, welcome back, Ingrid Bergman. Thank you for this most heartwarming welcome. And I've come to thank you, a belated thanks for the Oscar I got two years ago. Now, this is the moment you've been waiting for. The winner are, again, Gigi! about a little girl. Her name is Gigi. Now oh, she looks adorable. So fresh. So eager. So young. Thank heaven for little girls. For little girls get bigger every day. Yes, Gigi was so eager, so young, but not too young to learn about making herself shine in the eyes of some lucky man. She was raised to raise eyebrows, but Gigi more enjoyed raising the roof. That since the world began, no woman or a man has ever been as happy as we are. Voila! It's a gay and taunting Paris that takes love so seriously and marriage so lightly. And what is a picture about gay Paris without Maurice Chevalier? He had once been the twinkle in Grandmama's eye. We met at nine. We met at eight. I was on time. No, you were late. Ah, yes? I remember it well. Gigi is dedicated to your zestful entertainment. A feast for your heart and senses in eye-thrilling cinemascope and metro color, lilting with the exciting melodies of Lerner and Lowe. Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 31st episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars Movie Podcast, where we travel through time reviewing the films that earned their gold statue or standard, if you will. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre is my podcasting partner in crime, the lady who is soon to be TikTok's latest sensation when she's not assembling her own team of Avengers, Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing today? <laughs> I've... Uh... Oh, dang it. I had something I was going to Oh, I've insinuated myself into my chair, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All righty. And unfortunately, of course, folks, our pod other podcasting partner, Zan, could not join us today. She's taking it easy after surgery. And of course, we wish her a speedy and full recovery. So, Zan, if you're listening, get well soon. And we're thinking of you. And However, Rachel, today we are joined in the Gold Standard Theatre by a very special guest who I know you you and also Chauncey are familiar with. He's a singer, songwriter, filmmaker, video producer, and DJ. Please welcome the PTK himself, Phil Thomas Cat. Hey, Phil, how are you doing? And welcome to Gold Standard. Uh, I appreciate you having me here, and I am doing wonderful. Oh, the, the pleasure is certainly ours. So, guys, today we are reviewing Gigi, directed by Vincente Minnelli, who we, of course, saw in An American in Paris based on the novel by the same name by Nobel Literature Prize winner Colette. The screenplay was by Alan J. Lerner. 
The original score and songs were written by Frederick Lowe, who we will meet again music-wise in My Fair Lady. Ernest Puente's Money, this movie cost $30 million to make and made $120 million at the box office, opening on May the 15th of 1958 and has a runtime of roughly two hours. So starting here with first impressions, Phil, when it comes to you, was this the first time that you sat down to watch Gigi and what did you make of it? Yes, it was the very first time I'd seen it. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. In fact, um, one of the uh, best musicals I've seen. Wow. Well, hey, that's definitely, that's awesome. (laughs) And Rachel, when it comes to you, how did you feel about this? Was this the first watch for you too? It was the first watch for me, although obviously, of course, we're familiar with with Vincent Minnelli with uh, An American in Paris. I can't say I'm going to be as nice. (laughs) 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 It's like Vincent Minnelli, he'd set a standard with An American in Paris, which I did enjoy. So my hopes were high for this. And unfortunately, I don't think he quite reached them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. Well, I guess then we'll, we will have uh, have quite a few things to talk about when it comes to that. Then, funnily enough, this was actually one of my maternal grandmother's favorite films, and she would quote it often, especially some of the songs. And funnily enough, I can see why, as it is a very charming picture. And there are actually moments in this film which remind me of how my grandmother was when it came to certain things, especially table manners. And I had, of course, you know, remember Maurice Chevalier singing the Aristocats theme. And, and I believe this is actually the first best picture winner where it's clear that the actors are literally breaking the fourth wall by talking to or singing to the audience rather than just looking at the camera as previous films, which were literally shot as a play. And so it looked like the actors were talking to us, though that wasn't the intent. The thing is, I, I think it's a very charming film, but yes, if you look at it with today's eyes, there are quite a few problems. Like, of course, yeah. we'll get to uh, one of the songs, one of the most famous songs, Thank Heaven for Little Girls, or heck, even the fact of grooming young girls to ostensibly become mistresses or escorts. So I guess in today's eyes, you know, as you know, from what you were saying, Rachel, one might not be as kind when it comes to this film. So let's get down to it. So let's start looking at our characters on the board here, starting with our titular character, Leslie Caron, as Gigi, who uh, we did, of course, meet in American in Paris. And while her singing parts, though, were actually done by Betty Wand, though I would say that their voices do much match up pretty well. So, Rachel, you know, you being a, appreciating Leslie Caron in other films, what did you make of her as Gigi? I mean, she's adorable. I mean, she's definitely got that young ingenue thing going for her. Um, I think she was grossly underutilized in this movie. Hmm. Um, you know, as a character, Gigi, she's obviously put in kind of a no you know, a really tough situation where, uh, you know, her, she's living with her mother and her grandmother. And, you know, there's a later scene when uh, Gaston is, is, you know, spouting off to, you know, to his, uh, his uh, father um, about, you know, how 
she turns him down. And he's like, can you imagine you know, a girl living in mold and blood? And it's like, I don't think the apartment looks that bad. I mean, it's not the Ritz or anything, but I mean, it's it's cute. Um, you know, kind of eclectic looking. You know, they just kind of have... Uh, you know, decorated with like bits and pieces that they found probably from, you know, her mother's, her mother's probably picked up things, you know, as she's, you know, been a performer, but she's not like an A-list performer, you know, she's like townsperson number three, mm -hmm. seemingly in the, all these productions. <laughs> um, so, you know, her, her grandmother has, has, uh, you know, seemingly done most of the job of raising Gigi. Um, and then she's got this, aunt who has lived the life that she's trying to get Shiji to be steered towards thinking it's like the best thing ever but Shiji is obviously you know her personality is just not meant for a life like that um, but uh, you know like you know, when Leslie gets to speak she's great but the moment that she starts to sing it sucks that she had to be dubbed um and yeah, i guess even she was not happy with she like she insisted on being there when the the gal who would be her singing voice was recording to watch it to make the make sure she, that she was like feeling the same feelings as leslie you know would be portraying on the on the screen um but even then she was not necessarily happy with the, the dubbing performance and the fact that she doesn't get to dance. I mean, this woman, before she became an actress, she was a trained dancer and we get to see her amazing dancing abilities in an American in Paris. And in this, the only time she gets up and actually kind of moves her feet is when they're singing about when they invented champagne. And even then it's just a little hop skip, you know, across the room. And that's about it. And I was like, this is a musical with, with lots of singing no dancing <laughs> so i'm sure that side of you was this is a half of a musical <laughs> <laughs> so in fact i'm sure you, you loving the dancing like you do you know I, I can see why you were a little bit disappointed with that but you know you mentioned the fact of, of betty wand and stuff but to you did the two voices kind of line up or did it kind of throw you off whenever betty wand was singing gigi's parts <sighs> i mean I don't really know what Leslie Caron's singing voice really sounds like. So I did. I mean, I, it appears to be, I guess, a decent dub. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I, I, I reckon so. And, and Phil, when it comes to you, what did you make of our, of our protagonist? What were your thoughts on Gigi? Well, I, I of course thought that she was very, very adorable in the movie. And, uh, I was unaware that she didn't sing the parts that, uh, that of course she sang in. And uh, you know, as far as as far as Gaston condemning the living arrangements of Gigi, I think that was simply his male ego talking. Yeah, probably. <laughs> That's true. So uh, were you up, I mean, when it comes to your taste, like in musicals, Phil, would you have liked to have seen more dancing? Were you happy with the fact there was kind of more singing and less dancing here? Well, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of dancing. I, I've seen it in 
many movies through the years and even experienced some myself. So I think I would have enjoyed a little more in it. Mm. But in some respects, the singing kind of gave me that old feeling of the um, of the Elvis movies. Mm. That's a good comparison for sure. I mean, I and, and I guess, you know, first off, we have to, I think, point out that Leslie Caron was 27 at the time this film was made. And Louis Jordan was 10 years her senior, which is not that bad. And that said, you know, the transformation I found that Gigi goes through in this film is mind blowing. As when we initially see her with like her hair loose and wearing these schoolgirl like dresses to the dress she wears by movie's end. And I'm sure, Rachel, you loving costumes, I'm sure you really appreciated the dresses. You really do buy the change of from a young girl to a young woman, at least aesthetically. And when it comes mm -hmm. to her portrayal, she did somewhat remind me of the character of Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music, as she's very much the rebellious spirit who, while Maria is very much an unorthodox nun, and Gigi is very much the young girl who wants to be a young girl to somewhat the chagrin of her grandmother and her aunt who are trying to turn her into a glorified mistress or courtesan, as the term was in those days, they were known as courtesans, and she's not exactly on board at first with the whole concept. And I cannot blame her as at her age, she's all about more childish things and is a lot more adventurous and has a lust for life rather than wanting to be somebody's mistress. And, you know, from her love of candy to just playing around to her life at the moment, it's more of just a game than anything else. And try as she might, it just seems to me like she just doesn't want to conform to the courtesan mold. By movie's end, of course, the transformation is very much mind-blowing as she has very much become what she was groomed to be by her aunt and seems to have acclimatized to this and is happy with it. I feel, though, that she actually wants to get married to somebody who loves her rather than just sharing a man's bed. And she just seems to want to friend-zone Gaston initially. And she does, in fact, but she does, in fact, give in at the end of the end. I actually wanted to ask you guys about the ending, but I'll keep it for when we actually get there. But... I did enjoy this portrayal. So, let, meantime, though, let's touch up on uh, two women who are grooming Gigi as a courtesan. We have her grandmother, Madame Mamita Alvarez, played by Hermione Jingold, who my listeners might know from Belle, Book and Candle, The Music Man, and The Little Night Music. And of course, we have also Isabel Jean as Gigi's aunt Alicia, who was in numerous Hitchcock roles and also tons of theater. So Phil, when it came to the two main ladies in Gigi's life, what did you make of her, her aunt and of course, um, Mamita? Well, I, I loved Grandmama much more because she was much more accepting to Gigi and what she wanted to be. But I do understand her aunt also wanting to groom her to, to be, I guess, a woman of that era. Oh, no, for, for sure, very much so. And Rachel, what were your thoughts on these two characters? Um, you know, as, <laughs> as much as that particular like like the idea of like being a professional mistress <laughs> nowadays just seems kind of you know it's 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 really just like a uh, putting trying to put a, a you know a, a fancy ribbon on essentially prostitution mm -hmm. i guess just more long-term prostitution instead of it being like a one-time thing you're like with the guy for days weeks years maybe um but that's essentially what it is um and you know 
I have nothing against sex work. Um, so, you know, that's, it's perfectly, um, uh, valid as long as it's safe. Uh, you know, so, and some people do that it, even modernly where they are, are proud to, to, you know, make their living that way. And apparently, you know, her aunt, aunt Alicia is definitely one of those women who was, you know, made for that type of lifestyle. Um, but just the fact that she, you know, is essentially grooming her, her niece um, for, uh, you know, this this lifestyle that she, it, it doesn't seem to occur to her to even ask Gigi if that's even what she wants. Because, like, if Gigi's in school, you know, she, she asks her, you know, what did you learn in school today? And she's like, oh, you know, history and English and Right, you know, her aunts are like, we're in France. They're not teaching French. Um, <laughs> so, but it, like, it never occurs to her to even ask if that's what Gigi wants. They just, you know, that's what she did. And she's got all these nice things. She lives in this nice house, you know, with a butler. And, you know, she would see her taking a bath with all these fancy, like, oils and lotions and stuff, yeah. you know, and she really, really enjoys the finer things in life, and she just assumes that that's what everybody else wants um, without marriage and romance and, and all of those things. Um, so I just, I, I found that disappointing that, that Gigi's, you know, personal opinion on the matter doesn't seem to matter to her aunt, unlike Grandmama, who uh, just wants, I think, just wants Gigi to have the best life that she can. Um, and if, it, you know, and, uh, you know, to, to live, have a life outside of their, you know, seemingly, you know, not so refined living situation, you know, not living with her mother, uh, you know, being able to go out into the world and she understands that money and influence can get you a lot of places. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, you know, we'll get to the end of the movie, but, you know, it's, it's ultimately kind of her that Gaston goes to. She is kind of the person that gets to, to have the final say in Gigi's future. Um, but we'll we'll get to the get to that. And I love Hermione Gringold. I didn't realize she was in this movie until she appears on the screen. I'm like, oh, it's <laughs> Mrs. Shin because <laughs> I love the music man. It's one of my absolute favorite uh, musical movies of all time. So anytime she pops up, because like she's popped up in Around the World in 80 Days too, is a really small part. But even then, I'm like, oh, it's Mrs. Shin. So <laughs> she's a she's just a great character actress. Uh, whenever she whenever she pops up in something so oh very true and in fact i knew you hadn't seen this film rachel and you had actually mentioned your love for her mind jingle prior prior and i was like i i didn't want to say anything because I, I wanted to obviously savor the surprise you know for you so like that you would be that happy it kind of like reminded me of when i watched uh, avenger uh, captain america civil war for the first time and ant-man pops out and i had that reaction that you had with her mind yeah. i was like oh my god it's that man and i was so happy <laughs> it's that person from that thing i like <laughs> <laughs> exactly i felt exactly the way that you did with this character and, and i do kind of agree with you because I, I feel that both are the classic case of living in the past and naturally being older than gigi 
As usual, you know, they feel they know better than she does when it comes to what she needs and what she should be. And it's curious, I found that we hear very little, if anything at all, about Gigi's father. And all we know about is like her mom, all we know about her mom is she's a trained singer and pretty much all we get from her is like a voice off camera singing. And you'd think that as busy as she is, she may want to know that her daughter's going out with the most famous and eligible bachelor in France, probably. I'm like, you know, I get that she's the offstage thing, but you know, would have been nice to at least say, you know, I'm going out with this guy, mom, what do you think? But no, my theory, is that Gigi's mom was a courtesan herself and ended up getting pregnant by Gigi's father who pretty much moved on to the next woman. And so it's pretty much up to Gigi's grandmother and aunt to raise her. And, and as I mentioned, you know, that the, the two are pretty much hell bent on making sure Gigi will be a courtesan like they were. And as much as they seemingly do love her, they consider her to be a little backward when I when I think all that Gigi wants is to be a young girl and experience the things someone of her age would. But to them, it's like she's backward. I'm like, how is that backward? But never mind. But both, I think, uh, Grandmama and Alicia are very conscious about, like you were saying, Rachel, social standing. And I'm assuming Mamita knows Gaston because of the relationship she had with his uncle. That said, there seemed to be no mothers per se around, and Mamita, like her pet name, seems at times to very much act as a mother to both Gigi and Gaston in different ways, you know, ex except possibly when Gigi is present, as then Mamita treats Gaston with a little more reverence. And I wonder whether her and her aunt assuredly want Gigi to be happy, but whether they also do see her as their way to a better life and social standing. Also, I mean, Aunt Alicia reminded me somewhat of my maternal grandmother, who, as I mentioned before, was very much about etiquette and table manners. And it's thanks to her that I learned the, all those things, along with my love for literature. So now, when I'm actually eating at the table, folks, I eat well because of my grandmother. And I definitely appreciate that very much. That but she... do you eat the bones? <laughs> that, that depends sometimes like oh no crack oh oh, there we go but um but yeah i also you have to love her for frustration at how gigi does not take her etiquette seriously yet alicia does succeed by movie's end as we see that gigi has pretty much become the courtesan she'd been groomed to become and acts uncannily like her aunt but then that veneer tends to wash off pretty quickly when Gaston mistreats her, and we will get to that. And, and I guess Aunt Alicia is possibly more of a social climber than Mamita. That's my kind of take mm -hmm. from it. So let's get to the man that Mamita and Alicia are hoping Gigi will hook up with. Of course, Louis Jordan as Gaston Lachaille, who our listeners might know from Letter from an Unknown Woman, Octopussy, The Paradigm Cage, and he also played Dracula in the 1977 BBC TV adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, Rachel, when it comes to uh, Gigi's potential beau, what did you make of Gaston? This guy <laughs> has... He needs his head screwed on straight. Like, you know, he's like, he's, he's run, running around you know paris and his, his dad is all like let's do this and let's do this he's like oh it's just boring i'm like you're in freaking paris dude <laughs> you know it's like surely you can uh uh you know find something interesting <laughs> to do that you have a, like yeah you know 
you know, he's like, oh, the wine, it's either red or white. I'm like, well, you know, it's 1900. I'm like, we've got more colors than that now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like, oh, the sky, you know, it's like, oh, Paris is beautiful in the spring. And they were like, they bum rushed, speed ran filming this movie in Paris to take advantage of that, like, short window of Paris in the spring. Uh, something that Manelli was so happy to get this time around because he did not get it with an American Paris where it was pretty much all on sound stages. They were like, we're, we can film in France? Yes? Okay, good. Let's go. You know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but it's like, I've never been to France. I would love to go. Uh, and I, I can't imagine that I would get bored in Paris at all. But this guy apparently has figured out how to be, how to be bored in, in Gay Paris, um, which i'm shaking my head at but you know it, it he's just um yeah i can understand like he's he i can understand maybe he's bored because he lives a certain lifestyle that's expected of, of him mm. because he's rich you know playboy um you know the, he, people expect him to throw these huge parties it's like oh i'm just throwing a small go away party at the eiffel tower for 200 people <laughs> i'm like okay um so he's got, he's even got a lot expected of him even at his age mm. you know comparative to gigi's where you know he's he's a few years older than her and has you know lived more life um, so I can understand maybe being frustrated with being shoehorned into this lifestyle that, you know, at the time when he was probably younger, really enjoyed, you know, having all the freedom and the money to, you know, party and, and hang out with all the pretty women and stuff. But now he's getting older and, <coughs> excuse me, getting all, I'm getting upset here. Um <laughs> thinking about being bored in Paris. Um, but, um, you know, I think there's probably a little part of his brain that's all like, well, you know, this is getting, you know, there's only so many women you can party with and drink so much champagne. And it's like, ah, maybe I want a little something different. And maybe that means settling down with a woman and maybe having children and, you know, having a different lifestyle, but it doesn't click for him until later when he has that fight with Gigi when he sees her after she's gone through the transformation in that first dress um, and he storms off and he's just all like you know you're you know he's he's just so mad but then he has that epiphany moment of oh holy crap you're not a little girl anymore you're a woman you're a good looking woman I love you, <laughs> which I I didn't realize until I was watching a a, 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 mo a video on YouTube um, about something else. But they were talking in the video um, about how actually this movie directly influenced a, a much better movie uh, that came comes much later, Clueless. Mm. It, there's several moments where I'm like, I can see the Clueless influence. In fact, they use some of the, the theme song Gigi in Clueless at one point. Um, but when 
Gaston's having his epiphany like in front of the fountain and I, all I could see was Alicia Silverstone <laughs> in Clueless going oh my god I love Josh speaking of Paul Rudd now man uh, so <laughs> you know I was like oh okay I see that so I you know I, I totally was like oh he's having his I love Josh moment uh, that Cher's gonna have you know so many years later Clueless in front of the fountain um so I, th- I thought that was funny that, you know, he just he just has this moment where you can see the light bulb comes on where he's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not mad. I'm in love. And it's, you know, and it, it, like the last like 20 minutes of the movie from like that point on is him going back and then, you know, having a discussion either with his father or grandmama or, you know, Aunt Alicia or, or Gigi and then getting mad and then storming off again. And then getting so far and realizing, oh, wait, no, never mind, turning around and coming back. (laughs) (laughs) But thankfully, by the end, he does get his head screwed on straight. But even after he has that epiphany, it's not quite screwed on completely straight yet, but we're getting there. (laughs) I I guess we're getting there. Yes, indeed. And, And Phil, what did you make of Gaston? Well, honestly, I thought he was just just a man who fell in love. And it's a love story. Now, I know there's an age difference, and I know there were problems, I guess you could say, with her being groomed to be what she really didn't want to be. But I think ultimately, he loved her, and I think she loved him. Well, I guess that's because you make a point there for sure. I mean, I, I guess, you know, he is very much a man of leisure i found who apparently has made his money in the sugar industry i guess mm-hmm. and he's literally the like you were, you, you were pointing out also rachel the epitome of the bored man of leisure as it seems like unlike unlike his uncle honore gaston seems incredibly jaded by living the life of luxury and wealth and frequenting these incredibly exclusive places and dating the women of that status and it, it seems like the only times he has any enjoyment is either when he's hanging out with Mamita and even more so with Gigi. And it's interesting how their relationship evolves through the film. As initially, I think it's very platonic and he treats her as a young girl he cares about, but nothing more. But it seems to very much change after that weekend that the three of them have at Trouville, where Gigi very much makes Gaston feel alive and gets him out of this doldrum boredom I think from yeah, there. I mean, they, yeah, yeah, they genuinely seem to have like a really. I love that. That's probably like one of my favorite sequences is their weekend away at the beach, where, you know, every now and then you would like that one lady. She's in like full fancy dress that she looks like she should be having dinner at a fancy restaurant somewhere, and so she's just standing on a tennis court, just pop, you know, <laughs> pop with her tennis racket. Meanwhile, you know. They're running around and the you know getting splashing each other in the water and Gigi's falling on the ground you know trying to hit the tennis balls and you know they're trying to ride donkeys and his donkey doesn't want to move and you know it's like you you, you know that's like the first time where he's like obviously not just going around going it's boring yeah that's the one <laughs> the few times where he actually is happy and. Yeah, and I think that's probably when Gaston then clearly feels that he's falling in love with Gigi. But 
the way he treats her, I suppose, is what started that whole playbook of the more you mistreat a woman, the more she'll want to be with you. And this seems to work with him, unfortunately, quite a few times. And the weird thing is, is that by movie's end, I'm guessing he's seeing Gigi turn into the exact kind of woman that bored him. And he pointed this out to her when he criticized her dress. And I think this concern of his has him drag Gigi out of Maxime's and leaving her at home, storming off only to come back and then ask Mamita for her blessing to marry Gigi. And I was like, okay. But uh, but yeah, it was. I, I mean, I, I get that, but it still was a little bit weird that he's like, "Oh, I don't like the way you're dressed. This is not cool." And everything else. And then I have to sit by the fountain and sing. And then I'm okay. I'm good, and I'm coming back to marry you. But it was a little bit odd. <laughs> so let's get to the man who seems to be Gaston's mentor when it comes to love and women, and who has that song, which, as beautiful as it is, might be a little bit uncomfortable. We are talking, of course, about the legendary Maurice Chevalier as Honoré Lachaille. So, Phil, when it came to Uncle Honoré, what did you make of him? I thought he was an interesting character, and I think he was like a lot of people of that era. Mm. Now, um, I did enjoy the song. In fact, I enjoyed many of the songs that, that he did, or which however many it was. But uh, the Thank Heaven for Little Girls is definitely my favorite and that is the only piece of music from the film that i had ever heard prior to seeing it mm. so you were cool with it in the sense that it never sort of made you i mean because i guess you kind of put it into context that you know it, it it works for that kind of situation i mean it didn't like make you cringe because i know some people cringe when they hear that song yeah i think they probably do today and i think when it was the film was released that might not have been the case so much mm. and because i think society in a lot of ways was that way up until more modern times good good point and and rachel when it comes to you what did you make of uncle honore and uh, i suppose uh, yeah the song that he is saddled with yeah he's uh you know, if he and it is funny because we find out that he and Grandmama had like a thing mm -hmm. back in the day, which I think is probably that's probably my favorite musical number, just because you know he'd be like, oh yes, I re you know I remember us taking a carriage and she's like we walked and he's like oh the sunshine it rained and he's like I remember it well it's just hilarious. Yeah, and the fact that she doesn't, you know, she still corrects him, but at the, you know, she's like, "Oh, I'm so glad to see you remember things the way you do." Like she, uh, she totally gets that he's probably got a terrible memory. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you know, honestly, he and I'm surprised that he and Aunt Alicia, like, they didn't get a scene together. Because those two are cut of a very similar cloth. Although I think even actually he is maybe even more extreme in that lifestyle because it's like you know he's just as happy to you know date everything in a you know young in a skirt that walks by yes. um and you know it it, it it doesn't seem to be nefarious you know we see him you know looking at some ladies and they're giving him a look back you know they're not looking at him like disgust or anything mm -hmm. they're like hey you know you're human i'm human let's go have some champagne um and 
of the time period that was probably perfectly acceptable. And I, I think that's the same same thing for thank heaven for little girls. Yeah, nowadays it is very cringy, uh, <laughs> especially having it sung by a man of that age. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only thing that saves it is the fact that it's, you know, it's like, thank heavens for little girls, but then it's like, you know, if it wasn't for little girls, what would little boys, you know, have, to, I guess, essentially to keep their attention? Mm-hmm. So he's singing about it from this perspective if he was of the same age. And right. I think that kind of saves it, but it is it is still kind of cring- cringy. Um, but again, context for the time period, and not even just the time period that the movie was made, but the time period it's set in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is 1958. It's set in 1900, so you know the 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 way people thought about relationships. Uh, in you know ages between you know between the the sexes was way different than the way we think of think of things now um but other than that you know i i I think i think maurice did a a a great job i hear and i don't know if this was intentional or not but his not so not so much his singing voice but definitely his speaking voice i would hear uh, Lumiere from Disney's Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> he would have been perfect it, for that role. Yeah, like I, I just like I could just hear that in there, and I, I don't know if, um, <clears throat> oh goodness, and I can't think of his name that plays Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I can see his face from Law and Order. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if that was intentional, that maybe he was like, oh, I'm going to channel my my inner Marisha for this, but I could definitely, like, I was like, oh, let's close my eyes, and this could be Disney's Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> <laughs> but were, were you actually familiar with Marie Chevalier in general? I mean, I know, of course, you probably, you know, you being a Disney fan, probably heard him sing the Aristocats theme, but had you seen him in anything else besides I, this? N- I don't think so. I recognize his name, but I don't know exactly from what. Oh, okay, okay. It's yeah. just one of those things where I think I think I've just seen his name around places but off the top of my head i don't because i've never i've never actually seen the aristocratic really you haven't yeah that's one disney movie you know disney movie that i haven't gotten around to quite yet so Hmm, okay (coughs) well well, 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 that will definitely have to be remedied because i somewhere my friend hope is giving me the dirty eye (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually i'm actually surprised about that but you know i you know if you get the chance definitely check it out i mean it's it's definitely a fun movie hey it's disney so you know it's going to be fun and and yeah you know the thing about this character is um, apparently he's considered to be what at the time was called a Rue or Hellraiser today. And he was literally like that kind of man who would dispose of generous amounts of money and would spend them on wine, women and song. And, and in Honoré's case, obviously, especially women. And you have to wonder the, the kind of wild man he must have been in his younger days, as the guy would be, I think, in perfect company with folks like Catinflas from past, uh, Flash's past part two from around the world in 80 days. And I found this character devilish and charming, but like you were saying also, Rachel, never in a lecherous or creepy way. And that's probably because of the charm of Maurice Chevalier, I think. And though he is older than Gaston, he is his direct opposite, as 
while Gaston is bored and jaded in a time where he should be carousing like there's no tomorrow, Honoré is very much still full of life and all about enjoying himself and surrounding himself with young folks in order to feel young. Though I don't think he's actually chasing youth himself unless it's young ladies. But other than that, I think it's just that he likes to be around young people. And I don't think there's any, anything sort of perverted or creepy in that. And he does literally act, I think, as Gaston's life coach, if you will, while majorly teasing him at the same time. And, and I guess he does expect his nephew to pretty much embrace his wealthy socialite playboy way of life without, however, pushing it on him like Gigi's relatives are on her courtesan role. I mean, he's like, you should enjoy life, but it's not like I'm going to helicopter uncle you into being a playboy. And I love when he sees Gaston all in a tiff and he's like, calm down, have some cheese. I thought that was <laughs> That's so French. <laughs> I love that. And I love that. It, it, it actually reminded me, I, I, I remind me of this cartoon I'd seen once where the guys, were, I'm sure it's taken for this, where the guy's like, it's totally ticked off. And the guy's like, calm down, baby, have some cheese. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. It, it's, it's the male French equivalent of the Golden Girls and said cheesecake. It's just actual cheese. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Of course, because you are in France. So you can offer them wine and cheese, obviously. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, I loved I love Maurice Chevalier in this. He was he was absolutely fabulous. So let's look at how this film ended. Of course, the ending is, you know, we have uh, uh, Gaston being so much in love with Gigi, but to give her and he doesn't want to give her this life of uncertainty and social judgment. And he makes her leave without a word and he drags her up the stairs to her apartment. And she cries and she asks what she's done wrong. He then leaves, but stops a short distance away. Then, like you were saying, Rachel, he realizes the depth of his love for her and he returns to Gigi's apartment and asks her grandmother for Gigi's hand in marriage. What does Gigi do? She smiles. And in the final sequence, we find Honoré proudly pointing out that Gaston and Gigi are married. They are elegant, beautiful, and happy. So were you happy with this ending, Rachel? Um, I guess so. Uh, like I said, the... Yeah, you know, once once Gaston kind of has his revelation that he's actually you know madly in love with Gigi, there's only like twenty minutes left of the movie, <laughs> so it's just there's a speed run there at the end of some fights and a little bit of making up and some arguments and this and that and the other thing and I you know by the end it's like yeah they're gonna live happily ever after because that's what you do in these types of movies. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, you know, Gigi turns him down when, when they're arguing over, you know, her becoming his, you know, his mistress, but then he's like, no, I actually love you. Um, you know, and then she's like, well, you know, I'd rather be miserable with you than without you. And I'm like, okay, that's cringy uh <laughs> um and then they go out you know to to this restaurant which this poor restaurant <laughs> they actually had to they filmed at it but apparently it's really teeny tiny it's way more enclosed space than it appears although i think they had to go back and do some reshoots and actually had to recreate the restaurant for a couple of couple of scenes but for the most part it's actually filmed in the actual restaurant uh, so that was and, maxine's 
Yes, that was Maxine's, and and it, the fact that it's covered in mirrors like everywhere is kind of like one of its things. Mm. And Vincent Minnelli was all like, "How are we supposed to film with all of these mirrors? You're going to like all the cameras and everything are going to be reflected." So they had to get very creative um, because at first they were like, "Well, we could just cover the mirrors," and. Uh, they're like no that's like the thing that makes this restaurant famous so they had to get very creative with camera angles and lighting placements and stuff so that mm -hmm. nothing got caught in the mirrors um, and apparently at one point one of the mirrors like fell and shattered into pieces oh, no. um, and Manelli was like oh my goodness they're going to charge me so much money to replace this and the owner was like oh no it's not a problem mirrors get broken all the time because people are popping like champagne corks <laughs> and stuff we've got plenty of spare mirrors in the in the back you're fine <laughs> oh uh but yeah they go and we essentially get to see a, a reprise of the first time when he goes with the ann mm -hmm. um where everybody stops in their tracks to look and see who's just come in and so they can say gossipy things about them um Although this time everybody stops and they don't say anything, and I don't know if that's just because they don't they don't recognize Gigi because she's new to the scene, so therefore they have nothing to say. Um, but yeah, and just how uncomfortable you can just see as their meal goes on. They don't even get to the meal; they get as far as coffee, and. <laughs> You know, you can just see he's getting more and more uncomfortable with the way, you know, how Gigi has completely transformed into the person that her aunt obviously wanted her to turn into. And uh, there was one point where he's looking at her and I just had this, again, vision of a more modern movie from Mean Girls where her... Uh, Lindsay Lohan's friend is a like you're like you're full on plastic like you've turned into one of them <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it it's like you know if that movie existed then that's exactly what Gaston would be saying like you've turned full on plastic you've gone full on like Stepford wife or something mm. um, he's like that's not the girl that I fell in love with but he he doesn't know how to say it at that point. Um, so when they rush off and, you know, Gigi's so upset, she's like, you know, I don't know. Like, what did I do? And I'm like, well, you technically, you did it, but at the same time, you're just doing what you were taught. So really this is on your aunt <laughs> um, and kind of grandmama. Um, and again, you know, he takes her home. He storms off, ends up in front of the fountain, again this time at night and realizes what a dummy he is and goes back and um you know oh so humbly i guess you know ask grandma for because apparently Gigi's mother does not fit into this equation whatsoever um to ask grandma for you know her permission to to marry Gigi and you know the fact that grandma was like oh thank goodness we can put this whole thing behind us I'm like yes you're the winner and Alicia could suck it <laughs> so <laughs> well I, that's I, I that's that's very eloquently put indeed and, yeah <laughs> and Phil were you satisfied with the ending of Gigi 
I, I'm going to say yes on that. Much more satisfied than Rachel, I think, because I really enjoyed the whole thing, the whole love story of it. And I guess because I didn't think of the negative parts that, that, mm -hmm. that you have mentioned here, I thought of it as just a simple romantic comedy love story. Well, definitely, well, for sure. And, 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 you know, speaking actually of you, Phil, you know, you music being, you know, your bread and butter, literally, did you have any favorite songs in particular from this, from this film? Well, I was already aware of the cringy, <laughs> thank heaven for little girls. And I liked it mm -hmm. um, before. I also liked, I remember it well, of course, I thought that was wonderful. And it's a bore. Although it wasn't a bore. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. And Rachel, did you have any particular favorite songs? Uh, like I said, I think I remember it well was probably one of my one of my favorites. Um, I also did uh, uh, get a little uh, giggle out of uh, when they invented champagne. <laughs> Because <laughs> we finally get a chance to see Leslie Caron kind of cut a rug, uh, at least for just a tiny little bit. And, you know, the fact that, you know, she's she keeps, you know, at first she's like sneaking sips of champagne. And then after a while, she's just like, eh, Grandma Ma's in the room, whatever. I'm taking a, I'm taking a swig. Um, and, you know, they're just, you know, having a, a, a really just a happy go lucky moments of the three of them you know these people that have obviously known each other for a long time and have this really strong bond and gives them a chance to kind of just all, take all the the insecurities and issues they may have with the outside world and just kind of set them aside for a moment and just knock back you know some glasses of champagne which I guess I've had champagne. I don't know. Maybe if I've just had not good champagne, but I just don't see the the fascination with it other than it tends to be expensive and therefore makes you feel fancy. But, <laughs> so you but don't I like see the song. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the song's definitely great. And and yeah, I mean, look, when it came to, to myself, I guess the ending was good. There were, you know, we, we have this set, you know, mentioned this before in previous uh, reviews that um People tend to be forgiven a little bit too easily. And maybe one could make the point that Gigi maybe did forgive Gaston a little bit too easily. And it was maybe a little bit too neat. But I suppose also maybe to Phil's point, it is a romantic musical. So I suppose it works. And yeah, I mean, I was happy with, with the ending at the end of the day. And of course, it's nice to see um, Maurice Chevalier bookend the film because obviously we see him at the beginning and at the end and he's kind of you know, doing his thing. So I enjoyed that. And favorite songs, I think the one that obviously stuck out for me the most, I'm right there with you both, was I Remember It Well, which I adore to this day. Thank heaven for little girls. It's an incredible earworm. I mean, to the point it was actually used in the 90s in the US in the commercial for Mountain Dew and for Pepsi Max in the UK. And I actually checked out the, the commercials on YouTube and it's so weird to hear it sung that way, but it kind of works, I guess. And it can be problematic, I guess, depending on who sings it. As I guess placed within a certain context, it probably works better. I mean, when they did the Mountain Dew commercial, it was basically a group of girls singing it. So it's almost like, I guess, a girl power kind of thing. And I guess it can work. 
Um, but but yeah, I, I mean, thank him for. I guess um, I remember it well. It's probably my absolute favorite, and yeah, I just had it on repeat after this film was over. So let's get to our we with the Academy segment. This film won Best Picture during the 31st Academy Awards held at the Pantages Theatre in Hollywood on April the 6th of 1959. Your hosts for the night were Jerry Lewis, Mort Sol, Tony Randall, Bob Hope, David Niven and Laurence Olivier and presenting the award for Best Picture was the legendary Ingrid Bergman. This film was running up against four other movies, Auntie Mame, Cat on the Haunted Roof, The Defiant Ones, and Separate Tables. So I guess the question is, Rachel, starting with you, did Gigi's spark deserve to turn to fire, or should the French flame have been doused in favor of one of her fellow nominees? Yeah, she, like, she, okay. This movie is beautiful. Like, production design, Wise, it is breathtaking. I mean, obviously, Vincent Minnelli has an eye for lighting and color, and uh, you know, the people working on the costumes for this apparently had their work cut out for them, meeting period stuff in Paris, and apparently the Parisians don't keep that kind of stuff just laying around. Um, so it wasn't until they got back to Hollywood and had to do some stuff in the studio that they were like, oh, finally, a proper costume closet. Uh, <laughs> uh, so visually, this movie is just absolutely gorgeous um, and, and definitely deserves those technical awards you know mm -hmm. cinematography for color art direction costume design um because at this point cinematography is still separated color and black and white mm -hmm. um and i mean, scoring too yeah i mean the music uh, music on this is is really really good um you know gigi won for best song um, and I, I think it probably deserves that, especially considering most of the songs for this movie and the score were not written mm -hmm. until they were well into filming. <laughs> so they had to, like, all the actors would just have to lip sync to, like, piano accompaniment because they didn't have the full score yet. Because wow. <laughs> they were struggling so much with, with you know, the, the, uh, the score for this. Um, but, um, yeah, and I think maybe director, I think probably Minnelli probably still deserves it for best director. Because, like I said, the man's obviously got an eye. Yes. Um, you know, he, he definitely knows what he's doing with the camera, you know, getting you know, interesting, sh you know, shots and angles and the lighting, you know, like I said, you know, Gaston ends up in front of that fountain twice, having his light bulb moment of you dummy turn around and go back one times during the day and the other times it's, it's night, but it's lit just really, really well. So you can kind of see that it's the, you know, the, the nighttime equivalent of that same shot. You know, he's like, that shot worked the first time, you know, during the daytime, let's use it again. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, yeah, I, I think probably he deserves um, director for, for this too. Um, but as far as best picture, no. 
Okay. Absolutely not. This did not deserve it. It's so crazy because this Gigi set records this year. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards. It won all nine. So this was it set a record for wins at nine. Although that record would be uh, broken the next year when we, you know, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, yes. than her. Um, but it would also set the record for a film winning for every category it was nominated in for several years um, until like The Last Emperor or something I think is the next movie to do that um, and then uh, it would not happen again till Return of the King and actually beat it with 11 uh, you know be, uh, so uh, but we'll, we'll get to that in quite a while, I'm really excited to talk about Lord of the Rings. So, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, this is not the best motion picture uh, by any means. Like I said, it, visually it's beautiful, but other than that, it's just, eh. You know, it, I had, like I said, I had high hopes coming from an American in Paris, and this just it falls way short um of that just like the the characters uh i don't think are as developed as they they should be there were some issues with production as far as like the sound they had to go back and do like a lot of dialogue replacement which they didn't actually have that technology at the time but essentially that's what it is um and you can definitely tell especially at that ending when gaston is pulling gigi home and the like the, the 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 voice that you're getting from Leslie Caron and the face that you're seeing do not quite match as far as intensity and how upset she is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, just the plot is just it's again the time period that it's set in it makes sense context wise but just it's not aged well right. at all um and i think maybe even at the time um you know the the subject matter was a little touchy and in fact this although we do have this movie and its subject matter to thank for kind of the start of the unraveling of the Hayes code yeah because minnelli and um you know the uh, learner um had to fight to try to keep as much of the plot that's in the original novella in um because things like you know training a young woman who's barely of age of consent to essentially be someone's mistress not a wife it's not like they're training her to be a wife they're just training her to yeah and she even says she, she says that at one point she's like you know we'll be together but then eventually it's going to end you're going to go off and i'm just going to go get another man's bed and the censor, you know, the censors were like, oh, and they really had to convince them that, like, no, this isn't glorifying that. It's like a cautionary thing. Right. And that kind of got the censors to be like, okay, yes, we can kind of see that. Um, so, and yeah, and then I guess after this, the Hayes card 
more, yeah, and the censor, the real strict censorship starts to unravel after this. So at least we have that to thank for it. Um, but just, it, this is kind of like Gone with the Wind, where it's a really pretty package, really pretty looking present, but the contents of the present is just so cringy um, <laughs> that it just, it, it makes it really hard to be like, yes, this is the best motion picture of this year. Um, yeah, the fact that there's not, you know, this, this is, we're getting into that era where it's like five nominees, that's it. But, you know, we're not, we're not back into the years where we're getting like eight, nine, ten nominees. Um, so there's not a whole lot of competition. Um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. You thought Gigi was kind of difficult as far as subject matter. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, whole other ball of wax. Although unfortunately, the censors got to it way more than it did with Gigi. So this particular production of it, it's really, really watered down, and I think that hurts it. Right. Um, so um, you know, of the of the pictures nominated, the one that I think should have one and I'm crazy that I'm going to say this for a black and white movie <laughs> as much as I've been Ooh. like finally color the defiant ones oh that even now this movie and its subject matter and it the story that it's trying to tell is still so relevant even for today mm -hmm. um and it's fantastic acting I mean Sidney Poitier huh you know I, I get with tony curtis i mean those two literally chained together for most of this movie is just it's a harsh movie but this the this the story that it's telling about race relations and you know the criminal justice system to again to borrow from law and order uh <laughs> and you know just you know the relationships between people um it's still so so relevant i just watching that and it's it's really well paced um you know for not being flashy you know it takes mostly in swamps and woods and a lot of mud and stuff but it's still shot really well it's just it's really really compelling and I think still holds up, which I think is a sign of a really good motion picture. Mm, well, and uh, and I believe, you know, I know she's she's not here today, unfortunately, but I know that Zan feels very strongly about uh, the Defiant Ones as well. And I think she was the one who also, like you, Rachel, would have given it to the Defiant Ones. And Phil, when it comes to you, do you think Gigi deserved to win the Best Picture compared to its fellow nominees? Well, I'm going to have to disagree with Rachel and say, yes, I, I do think so. And I do understand that the subject matter is didn't age well, but I think that's mainly because society has changed. Mm. Well, that's that's uh, you know, totally fair. And, and I would actually have to say, you know, it's another great series of movies for different reasons that we get here when it comes to nominees in general, because Rosalind Russell well and truly brings the character of Auntie Mame to life and does such a superb job of it when, you know, and it's a very fun, yet very touching story. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I think, is some of the best work I have seen from Elizabeth Taylor, Paul Newman, and especially Burl Ives. 
And you very much feel the family drama unfold before your eyes as we get to learn more about this Southern family. And I actually had seen that in high school way back when. And, you know, obviously when you're a high school kid, it's like, oh, this is so boring. These are people just talking and yelling at each other. But, you know, now, as they say, youth is wasted on the young. And in fact, now that I sat down to watch, I was like, wow, this is good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is really good. It's just a shame how watered down it, it got. It's great acting, but because it's not as close to the original source material, true hurts it um but again yeah that cast you know that's probably one of elizabeth taylor's probably best performances i've ever seen isn't kind of hot and rough now if you want something closer to the source material on youtube you can watch the like 19 like 1975 or something version with natalie wood Mm. And while the acting isn't quite as good, although Sir Lawrence Olivier is in there as Big Daddy. Uh, <laughs> now I have to um, see that. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it, it was what Sir Lawrence Olivier was doing, like his run of like made for TV stage adaptations or Ooh. something like Sir, you know, Sir Lawrence Olivier theater or something series. Um, so the acting isn't quite as good i don't think natalie wood quite holds the candle to elizabeth taylor in this but it's way closer to the actual original source material so if you want to see some of that more gritty you know with the you know more obvious like homosexual innuendo and you know the just kind of the family drama that gets watered out of the elizabeth taylor version so it's kind of like if you could take the two and combine the best parts out of both of them you would have a fantastic movie (laughs) i I agree yes i think you you make a great point rachel there because in fact because paul newman you know does such a fabulous job as paul newman often does but Mm -hmm. uh but yeah it's true that's that whole you know i guess if it had it been done today you know you probably would have gotten you know obviously the whole picture and and now i definitely am going to watch that version because i want to see what Lawrence olivier does as big daddy compared to bill ives i really want to see that um and yeah and i do also agree with you the defiant ones is a fabulous team up between sydney poitier and tony curtis it's just Mm -hmm. they're just beautiful to watch and separate tables it's kind of Grand Hotel 2.0, if you ask me. <laughs> I enjoyed it for that because I love Burt Lancaster and whatever he does. But yeah, you know, it's kind of like, okay, Grand Hotel 2.0, I get it, it's fun, but it's not going to win Best Picture. So as much as I did enjoy Gigi and the songs it gave us, I would actually have given the Best Picture to Cat on a Hot Tin Roof because I think it very much suits the mold of what is considered the best picture because it showcases great acting directly and how efficiently a story is told with actually Auntie Mame as a close second because Rosalind Russell just captured my heart with her performance of that character. And I'm like, I want to go on adventures with Rosalind Russell now, but now I can't, so I'm kind of sad. But but yeah, so so those, those were my picks. So let's get to ratings then, guys. Phil, what do you give Gigi out of 10? I would say a nine. And and the only reason for that not being a 10 is the fact that it was kind of paced in a way that I felt too, too fast. Mm, totally sure. I see that. And Rachel, what do you give it? Um, 
yeah, I'm not going to be as nice. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> hey, that's half of the fun of doing this show um, is, is, you know, having these, uh, these discoveries. Um, yeah, I just, uh, like I said, it's a really pretty package. It's just the content is, is less than desirable. Um, so I'm giving this one a five and that is, all for the it's all coming from the production design okay i you know i you know we know that you are a strict judge and we totally get that so (laughs) that works i'm actually going to give this an eight out of ten as i very much enjoyed it i enjoyed the music uh maurice chevalier you know just captured my heart and just it was it just made me feel good i suppose i was maybe on kind of a down downward spiral when i was watching this and just kind of picked me up and made me happy and so I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 for just, uh, you know, make me feel more happy-go-lucky the day that I actually watch this. So that's, that's the way I feel. So, of course, we talked about this film and dissected it. And should you folks wish to join us on one of our discussions, like the wonderful Phil, or share your thoughts on the films we discuss here, you can do so by shooting us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmo.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, where you can find us as Oscars Gold, or on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and we appreciate the following support. Also, if you'd like to hear us discuss your favorite Oscar nominee, or a film that you feel deserve to be part of the Golden Conversation, you can join our wonderful family of patrons on Patreon and check out the great tiers we have going on on there. Of course, you'll also be able to unlock our previous reviews of such films as Notorious, the OG Star Wars trilogy, Singing in the Rain, Good Night and Good Luck, and many more. <clears throat> so to, of course, join our wonderful army of patrons, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Oscars. And of course, a big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support. So let's get to a shameless self-promotion then. Rachel, when you're not here with us, of course, in the Gold Standard Theatre, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me with the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. We are a weekly pop culture, geek culture, entertainment podcast where we talk about all things geeky and nerdy from the female perspective and uh, we can be found pretty much wherever you find podcasts pick an app pick a podcast aggregator you can probably find us and also the fiveishfangirls.com where you can connect with all of our social medias and my personal ones as well awesome and phil where can folks find you well they can find me at the uncharted zone on uh, youtube also, theunchartedzone.com, where I make music videos for bands all around the world. Plus, I do a radio show on Friday nights on Radio Free Pensacola, 10 p.m. to midnight Central Time. Fabulous. Well, folks, definitely be sure to check out Phil and the wonderful things he does because they are indeed awesome. When it comes to me, I do host the Whiskey and Cigarettes show where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more about that, you can visit our website, whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I do host Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast. We discuss all superhero movies under the sun. You can, and of course, uh, you can find us on your platform of choice. And if you want to just uh, check me out talking all sorts of stuff randomly on Instagram, you can join me on DJ Nictogram, where I basically sort of 
geek out on everything, be it movies, comic books, TV shows, etc. And uh, in the podcast realm as well, myself and the wonderful Charles Skaggs can be found on the Fandom Zone, where we discuss all superhero TV shows, and Titan Talk, the Titans podcast, which we've recently reopened as season three of Titans has started up, and we're having a great time discussing that. And speaking of things to come on this show, next time we'll be discussing the 1959 William Wyler film, Ben-Hur. So, Rachel, of course, always a joy podcasting with you. And Phil, I want to, of course, you know, on behalf of myself and Rachel and Zan, who isn't here, thank you so much for joining us today. And we really appreciate uh, you, you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the pleasure was certainly ours. And Rachel, did you do you have any uh, thoughts on Ben Hur? I assume you've seen this one before. I have not. <laughs> Are you serious? Wow, that's good. It's, interesting. It's another one of those epics that I'm like, I'll get around to it eventually. <laughs> well, this will then eventually, be your second. Eventually is now. Exactly. So I know. I know there's chariot racing. I know that much. <laughs> this will be your third Charlton Heston film, then. <laughs> yes. That so that's too. It. That's going to be, be interesting to watch. Well, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next time with Ben-Hur. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. Ciao, my people.